of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get to talking about uh, Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, we will give you some recommendations, as we always do. Ian, what do you have for us this week? Today I have for us... My name is Joe, Ken Loach film from 1998. Um, we've talked about Ken Loach a little bit on this this show. Of course, we did I Daniel Blake, yep. and I talked a bit about the wind that shakes the barley. And uh, we we uh, we uh, remorsefully talked about the fact that it's no longer in the book. That is that is a, a bummer. Um, but now I'm now I'm in it. Now I want to see all the Ken Loach I possibly can. I mentioned that in the films that we're looking forward to in 2020 with "Sorry We Missed You." Yep. Um, so this little gem, as I said from 1998, it was um, nominated for a BAFTA uh, for Best British Film. It lost to Elizabeth, but it also did uh, pretty well at Cannes. It did unfortunately lose the Palme d'Or, but it won Best Actor, which I think is still. Pretty prestigious to win something like that at Cannes for Peter Mullen, who stars as Joe. Um, It also features uh, Louise Goodall as Sarah. She's a social worker. Gary Lewis is a character actor who's a face you'll know, but a name you might not. And then also David Heyman as well is another face you'd know, but name you might not. Um, So he is a uh, 30-something, the Joe character. He's a pretty fresh out of prison he's in Alcoholics Anonymous he's been on the on the wagon for it feels like about a year or so I think he he mentions the exact date I think I want to say it's about 10 months but he's there with his friend played by Gary Lewis uh plays uh Shanks who's uh helping him through life and it's just a typical sort of Ken Loach film slice of life he's uh as I said he's a recovering alcoholic he's uh on the side, as he tries to make money, he also runs this little football team, uh, which is again for recovering alcoholics. And all the guy, pretty much all the guys on that team are real, uh, you know, survivors of alcohol abuse or, sure. or drug abuse as well. So again, like most Ken Loach films, he tries to get as many as the real people in for the flavor. And it's set in Scotland. It's a film that really I think does show that both the best and worst of Scotland. You've got the very the grittiness of cities like Edinburgh and Glasgow. And then there's also sequences where he has to try and bail out uh, one of the kids in his group who has fallen in with this gangster and owes him a lot of money. And this kid has a, a, a very small kid of his own, a couple of years old, with this girl who is uh, losing the battle to uh, to heroin. Um, so there's scenes where he has to, to drive and, and pick stuff up and they go up into the highlands of Scotland for that and really, really beautiful uh, cinematography. Um, but it's just, it's a heartbreaking performance from Peter Mullen, who's a guy who you've seen in stuff like Train Spotting, and uh, he's the, he's the, the guard that gets them into uh, the refugee city at the end of Children of Men. Okay, all yeah. right. Um, but man, this movie just is one of those Kent Loach working class heroes there's a story that really tears you apart and it does have quite the tragic ending um it just it really bowled me over i picked it up for a couple of bucks in a sale that somebody was doing um weirdly in uh conjunction with the release of the gentleman so they were doing like this british the best of british film kind of sale and i'm like oh shit that ken loach i'll pick that up and 
I'm really glad that I did. It was five bucks well spent. Really fantastic little film. So nice. You as a as a Ken Loach fan or a fledgling, both of us fledgling yeah, Ken yeah, Loach yeah. fans. We're just learning. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It is definitely must see. Like I said, Peter Mullen will just break your heart right open, man. Especially spoiler alert: falling off of the wagon. That is tough sure really really tough stuff and the reason why he went on the wagon to begin with that again this flashback sequence is really hard to watch but cool. yeah. ultimately really rewarding very worthwhile yeah yeah i definitely need to seek it out so what do you have for us this week uh so um i listened to a lot of film podcasts uh listened to the rewatchables and they had quentin tarantino on as a guest for three uh movies um one of them was dunkirk one of them was king of new york and the third is the movie I'm talking about today, which came up a long time ago when we did Top Gun. Now, King of New York, that's the, the Abel Ferrara film? Yeah. Oh, great, man. Yeah. That's, that's so awesome. He let, he let, so they let Quentin Tarantino pick the three movies. He picked Dunkirk, he picked King of New York, and he picked Unstoppable. The last Tony Scott movie. No way. Yeah. No yeah. fucking way. Yeah. That's great. I love Unstoppable. I think Unstoppable is a really fun movie. Well, and so I'd never seen it. And I was like, well, I can't, I can't, I, you know, I don't listen to podcasts about specific movies without having seen them. So I was like, well, I got, got to watch it. And this was a inter- very, very entertaining movie. Um, and it's, it's kind of pretty simple. Denzel Washington plays uh, a railroad worker and Chris Pine plays like a newly appointed conductor. And it's like, it's, I don't know if it's Chris Pine's first day. There's a little bit of nepotism there. Everybody yeah. thinks that he might be there because he's someone's nephew or something. Exactly. Shit. Um, but they're, uh, they're working on this, the same train today. And Denzel's trying to kind of show him the ropes, you know, even though technically I think Chris Pine is his boss or, or is higher up. Denzel's been around. So he's trying to show him, show him how everything works. Um, uh, two two idiots, uh, Ethan Suppley and T.J. Miller, basically, uh, mostly Ethan Suppley, they basically let a train that they are trying to move out of the station um, literally get out of their hands. And um, Ethan Suppley doesn't actually put the, the car in like a the, the train into a slow driving position and the air brakes aren't attached. So basically they have a it's not they call it a, they would they would they've been calling it a coaster, a slow moving train that's out of that is out of physical control. But it's not a coaster. This thing is going like 60 miles an hour and it is just fucking going. Um and so basically it's just how are we going to stop this train? Uh there's moments where there's there's a train full of kids that they have to um get out of the way of the train is going towards Denzel and Chris Pine and Rosario Dawson plays like the local person uh, of that, of that certain area who's sort of um, trying to help them out. Uh, Kevin Dunn plays like the big up, like the big Amtrak owner. It's not Amtrak, but like the big owner of it. Kevin Corgan is in it. I love it as like a smart train dude who's randomly in the movie. Um, it's not very uh, complicated. They try to throw in some other things. Chris Pine and his, his his wife are like on the down and out. She there's a restraining order against him. He has a kid. He wants to see him. Denzel has two kids that are working at Hooters to get themselves through college, but his wife died, and we find out later on that Denzel's already been laid off, and he's just working the last part of his shift before he has to get out of there. The movie is not it's not big on plot, but what it is big on is style. That Tony fucking Scott style. And not to the degree of something like Domino. He reels it way, no, way No, 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 no. Yeah, it's not as saturated. It doesn't have that weird color flair he was doing there for a it's while. The with... acid style of filmmaking, yeah, exactly. as they were calling it. But, but, but what I mean by that is just it's, it's it, that, um, sorry, like that enemy of 
Enemy of State, that Crimson Tide. Like, it feels more like one of those. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just, I don't, or, I mean, when you put Denzel and Tony Scott together, they make good movies. It was just a fun, it, it's not overly long. And you know that there's only so much you can do with this plot before you're, it's going to get too much. and Before um, it goes off the rails. Oh, that's so good. Fucking so good. That's Our so good. It should have been yours. On point. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I, you know, I'm, I'm one step closer to now I've seen all of Tony Scott's movies. Um, that was me. Which, yeah, if you want to go back and listen to our Top Gun episode, we do turn it into a Tony Scott tribute episode at the end, and I go through and I, I rank all of them, and then you chime in with the ones. I that chime I, in with the ones. I think you at the time you had seen maybe six, uh, five or six. Let's see here. I'm going to quickly go through those. Um, Enemy of the State, Crimson Tide, Deja Vu. Obviously, now this, Unstoppable. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, true top, romance. Obviously, Top Gun, True, true Romance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That, and that's probably it. That's yeah. honestly probably yeah. it. Yeah. So anyways, Unstoppable. It's a good, it's a popcorn flick, but done really well, entertaining. Denzel's Denzel. You know, it's it's just entertaining. It's did just you, an entertaining movie. Did you see the remake of Pelham 123 they did together just before this? No. Yeah, you're not missing anything. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. But they, it's funny that they did two train movies back to back. That is interesting. And it's, it is a bummer that it, it was his last one. It's probably not the one he wanted to go out on, but I mean, could have been worse. Could have gone out on Pelham. Yeah, that's true. Um, so there you go. Those are our wildly different recommendations. Oh, yeah. And not even close to the movie oh, that we're talking about Nowhere today. near. So, I mean, as far as the angsty thing, mine might be there, kind of. Sure. But yeah, that not, is like in the most stylized. remote way possible. <laughs> so the movie we're talking about today is Cries and Whispers. It is written and directed by Ingmar Bergman. Um, and a great small cast. Very So we've got Harriet Anderson, who plays Agnes. So there, let me, actually, I'll help this out a little bit. There are three sisters. We have Harriet Anderson, who plays Agnes. Yeah, she's she's the one dying who of is, cancer. She's dying of cancer. And they they never explicitly say it, but some scholars believe it's, it's cancer of the womb, yes, which, of course, will play into the plot very heavily. Yeah. Um, we have... Um, uh, Ingrid Thulin, who plays Karen, that's uh, the oldest sister. We have Liv Ullman, who plays uh, Maria, and then in a flashback also plays the mother. Which is an awesome decision. I absolutely love That's one of my favorite things about this movie. That was great, yeah. And then um, uh, and then the fourth uh, main character, who isn't a sister, but just as important, is uh, Carrie Silwyn, who plays Anna. Um, and then the other people... Who he originally wanted, I believe it was Mira... Excuse me. He originally wanted Mia Farrow for that, right? Oh, I don't know. We could talk about that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of, maybe I'm glad the way it went the way it did. I'm definitely glad it went the way it did. <laughs> and then the only other people that put it in there were um, basically like the three other men who are, are related to it. We have uh, Erland Josephin, who played the doctor, who was a lifelong friend of Ingmar Bergman. Uh, we have Henning Moritzen, who plays Joachim, who is um, uh, Maria's husband. And then we have uh, Georg Arlen, who plays Frederick, who is Karen's husband. I would have mentioned Anderzak as well, who plays Isaac the priest, and he was all he popped up again in a priest role in uh, Seventh Seal, the other Bergman film that we've talked about. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Um, yeah, it is just that one. Well, I, I'm gonna there's something I want to bring up about him later, but um, so yeah, there we go. Um, so as we mentioned before, we've we've done the Seventh Seal on the show. Other movies of his in the book are Summer with Monica, Smiles of a Summer Night, Wild Strawberries, Through a Glass Darkly. Persona, which I can't wait to fucking get to, um, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, and Fanny and Alexander. Which I believe was his last one because he finished his career in television, if I remember right. Yes, I think that's yeah. right. 
Um, so uh, accolades, as we mentioned in the previous episode on Crouchy Jack Hidden Dragon, this movie was up for Best Picture, one of a handful of foreign films nominated for Best Picture. Um, so it was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Original Screenplay, Costume Design. Guess what it lost all those to? The Sting. Uh, but it did win cinematography. Sven Nykvist did win cinematography for Cries and Whispers. Now, what a year for director not to get off, you know, on too far a tangent because so it got, was George, George Royhill who won, Lucas for American, American Graffiti, Graffiti. Uh, Bertolucci for Last Tango in Paris. I know you don't particularly like that right. film, but also Friedkin was up for The Exorcist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, good year. A I mean, great year for throughout, directors. About Bertolucci, but yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's good. Um, uh, the Golden Globe it was nominated for best foreign film. Uh, the BAFTAs it was nominated for um, cinematography and for supporting actress for uh, Thulin. It won the technical grand prize at Cannes. Um, now the National Board Review it won best director and foreign film. That's pretty cool. And the National Society of Film Critics it won screenplay and cinematography. Also, our friends in uh, Kansas City, they dug this film, as they did Straw Dogs, a previous episode. Uh, I wasn't going to bring it up. I'm so glad you did. I just wanted to bring it back to Straw Dogs. I saw that. I was like, okay. All right. Okay, so Kansas City is Uh, not going to be something we bring up if we find it. Oh, I know, right? And and Liz will love that, because Liz is from Kansas City. There it is. And uh, she would have me make you all know that Casey Moe, not Casey Kansas. Unlike our president. Yes. Okay, great. So, yeah, at the Kansas City Film Critics, they gave that director in foreign film as well. There you go. There you go. Um, this movie is not currently on the IMDb Top 250. It has an 89 audience, or sorry, an 89 critical with a 91 audience. Did you find any reviews on the movie? I did. I have Roger Ebert's original review from 1973. Do you have his great movies one from 02? Okay. Nope. I, went with, I went with Paul and Kale. All right. Nice. Uh, so Ebert said, Cries and Whispers is like no movie I've seen before and like no movie Ingmar Bergman has made before. Although we are likely to see many films in our lives, there will be few like this one. It is hypnotic, disturbing, frightening. It envelops us in a red membrane of passion and fear. And in some way that I do not fully understand, it employs taboos and ancient superstitions to make its effect. We slip lower in our seats, feeling claustrophobia, sexual disquiet, realizing that we have been surrounded by the vision of a filmmaker who has absolute mastery of his art. Cries and Whispers is about dying, love, sexual passion, hatred, and death in that order. I'm just going to jump right into to Pauline Kael's. Christ and Whispers has oracular power, and many people feel that when something grips them strongly, it must be realistic. They may not want to recognize that being led into a dream world can move them so much, but I think it's the stylized dream play atmosphere of Cries and Whispers that made it possible for Bergman to achieve such strength. The detached imaginary world of the manor house becomes a heightened form of reality, more literal and solid, closer than the actual world. The film is emotionally saturated in female flesh, flesh as temptation and mystery. In almost every scene, you're aware of bodies and parts of bodies, of the quality of Liv Ullman's skin and the miniature worlds in the dying woman's brilliant eyes. The almost empty rooms are stylized, and these female bodies inhabit them overpoweringly. The effect, a culmination of the visual emphasis on women's faces in, in recent Bergman films, is intimate and hypnotic. Hypnotic being keywords and bold. Oh, those. absolutely. And, and and Ebert touches on something about not being able to uh, like fully understand why. That's that's 
I I can't fully explain. Oh, neither can I. That's why I have in my notes. I have a ton of quotes to kind of help get me there. So I've got I've got quotes from Bergman himself. Uh, there's a guy on the Wikipedia page who they reference quite a lot, Professor uh, Eagle, Eagle Torn. Oh, I'm gonna butcher this. I'm so sorry. Uh, Tornquist. Uh, he's somebody that the Wikipedia page they talk about his. Uh, analysis quite a bit. And then I also have a, a little piece from Emma Wilson's Criterion essay, which I thought is one of the best essays I've read in any of the Criterions that, that I own. Yeah, I, re- I read hers too. Yeah. yeah, it's great. She's got a little piece that I really, really like. Um, his unique capture of his actress's sensuality of female skin, elasticity, and softness has been enmeshed in multiple narratives of his love affairs and erotic fascination, while it is also a part of his plastic, psychologically sensitive vision as a filmmaker. In Cries and Whispers more than any of his other films, the erotic is aligned most closely with the maternal, the two brought together in fullest flower, and this maternal eroticism goes beyond traditional, psychoanalytic ideas of sexuality and repression, exploring women's feelings as part of children's relations to them and as bound up in tender acts of love and care. That last line, I really, that... That's it. That's this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I guess we'll talk about the the, the outline of the movie because I, I just I want to just hop into places that we really want to talk about specifically. So essentially, as we mentioned, there are three sisters. Um, Agnes is is dying, and essentially, uh, uh, Anna and Maria have come to sort of or not sorry, Karen and Maria have come in to sort of just be with her and and what hopefully aren't, but what ultimately are her last days um, on Earth. And um, Anna is the housekeeper who's been there for a long time and so she's they mentioned at one point that she's been caring for her for like 12 years yeah something something like that um and it really is just them in the house and uh there's this there's a great uh technique used in the movie where it's just a close-up of their faces and there's like a a a crossfade to red and then a crossfade to basically a a backstory a, a, a moment moments that involved each of the sisters and then and anna as well um great framework that this film uses what i love about that is when we do fade to red and fade into the memory we're always on a close-up of who is remembering it yes yeah and then i will come back to them too to their face again and that gets us back into the current the storyline that they're going through which i think is is helpful in a in a film like this especially a foreign film like this for a for an american audience to to really help this this is who is remembering this this is why this is important to them specifically yeah yeah um so it was about halfway through the movie that I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm, I'm totally, I mean, I'm in, I, I'm buying this movie. And so, so I know, I know that you've seen seventh seal, but where are you on Bergman films? This is it. This okay. is the second one I've seen. So, I, and I'm only one up on you. I've seen, I've seen persona. Which you very graciously gave me. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's, it's, it's a bold statement and I, and I have only seen three of his movies, but I think Bergman has written, some of the best female characters ever put on screen because I think, I think BB Anderson and Liv Ullman and persona, I think they are fucking phenomenal. And I think the four main women in this movie are, are incredible in it. And I they think all so good. And, and it's not like he favors one of them. They all have a mountain of work to do. Oh yeah. Big time. Like and, nobody is getting out easy. And, None of them. And, and, and the, just the unique, backstories and and who these people are you can tell that it's not just a a slightly personal you know autobiographical bergman story or something he's dealing with but that each of these women get really unique challenges uh, things they have to deal with and 
I, I know the sisters are, are have a lot there, but I remember thinking at one point, like, Anna just has to be here quietly, you know, cleaning up and, and being a helper to everybody when, like, we don't even get to see her really deal with the fact that she lost a child. Yeah, we have we have one scene of that. It's just, it's incredible, and and people well, might see that as a as a as like a lack of uh, of a story for her. But I, I I you get to watch if you're really watching, you get to watch her in the background or on the periphery, waiting for something, I guess. But also just like you realize that she's still constantly dealing with that. I think that's just wonderful. I mean, wonderful to watch. It's, well, that's what's interesting about it is is we say that she doesn't have. They don't. They they just spend one scene with her dealing with the loss of her child. But in a in a literal sense, yes. But what's what's really interesting about her character specifically, the dynamic between her and Agnes, who oh, is very, dying. Yes. Agnes becomes her child, and she is reliving the death of a child all over again. One of the things I loved about their interactions is whenever there's two scenes where she really does cradle Agnes, gets into bed with her, and tries to ease her pain. And when she does this, she removes. Uh, her her blouse or opens her blouse yep. and takes Agnes to her breast mm-hmm. as you would to sort of nurture and to to feed a child. Yeah, right. I yep. just I, fuck. It's this movie is layer upon layer. I will spend years pulling this film apart, and still I don't think really understanding this. I was joking about this with with someone earlier. Is that um, I don't know that we're necessarily the right people to do this. You know, who wants to hear two 30-year-old white males try to delve into the psychology of a woman and a problem and the problems that they have to deal with, not of their own, but of, of, of relationships and life and death. And so this is going to be, I feel like we're going to maybe be stumbling in the dark. Maybe you have some some intuitions that I don't, but I feel like I'm really struggling on a first view i wish i had had more time to watch this film like seven or eight times sure. and really just get into it and and maybe try not to sound like a fumbling man because it what what is funny to me is how the men are treated in this film the men are are you know men are perceived as as strong and as caretakers or at least have been in in certain facets of our society yeah, but in, in, yeah, yeah. in this they're the weak ones which is the the thing that i really love about this is they they are weak and they are callous yeah and uh it it's it's the women that get to be subtle and nuanced and uh and and deal with real deep problems of love and death and time yeah time yeah at time especially so that's huge a massive preoccupation with time uh in this film the the film opens with clocks Mm -hmm. lots of clocks and what i uh what I what I found in some of the reading that I did is yes, people talk about the preoccupation with death, then they talk about uh, eroticism, and they talk about you know relationships to to mothers and mothers and daughters and things like that. But a lot of people don't really fixate, at least in what I read anyway, of his preoccupation with time. And what you have to consider is when and where Bergman wrote this. He wrote this when he was in a, as he as he describes, a, a self-imposed exile out on Faroe Island. Yeah. Um, and so you think about just him there alone, just at his typewriter or whatever he was using to write, and you, I'm sure he could feel time passing him by. And really, he throughout, from what I understand, only having seen two of his films, he is really concerned with death and the afterlife and. 
what's going to happen to us. And so I'm sure that was weighing very heavily on his mind as he's out there in this self-imposed exile. And I just, I, I love that we feel that. I love that we feel that this is someone who knows how limited our time is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and I, I, I kept that. And there's a, there's a moment where, um, Agnes, she wakes up or she gets out of bed and it looks like she's, I can't tell if she's starting a clock. She does something in her room and, 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 it was interesting because we see so many clocks that are working and then, but hers, she has to do something to, and it's not. I think she's the only person we ever see interact with a clock, yeah, right? It, but there was, yeah. Which I that so. in itself is great. Yeah. And it was just something about, you know, I, I, I wrote, like, is the clock not running? I go, so I, I just I was like, does she not know her place in time? Does she not even, she, how oh, aware is she? Oh, that's so fucking good. How, how aware is she, of she, is she of, of what's going on or, you know, where she is? Um, because I, I know, I realized that she's, as 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 people say later that she's she has cancer of the womb, but whatever is happening to her, her the scene where she is uh, like moaning and and shrieking and and writhing in bed, it's it was hard to watch. It, it the sounds that she's making, it's just fucking it it's brutal. It's and, and Bergman isn't gonna, he's not going to let us look away. No, it's, it's a not long at all. shot and it is a very intense close up. Yeah, we, we don't get reprieve from this we're not going to get reprieve from this yeah yeah um but that oh man that's so good i love that that she does she doesn't she know her place in time that's i i just it's just like an initial thought i had and it's good man. you're you're onto something really good there in a, in a movie that doesn't that that takes its time it takes about nine and a half minutes before we get the first line said in the movie we we do get we as an audience have time to really try to focus we get the time to draft our own narratives who you know i remember because early on i'm like who who are these people who, what's going on and not in a bad way but i'm just like you're starting to formulate the story and instead of being bombarded with exposition and being told what everything is you get to start making up your own stories you know what what is the interaction with this and that what does it mean you know that she goes and starts to write in her journal for a couple of lines and then goes back into bed and i, I think that's bergman allowing us or at least trying to challenge us to to come inside this this thing with him and, and make sure that we are on this journey with these women, like really take our, our time setting it up. So you get to know them, you get to know just how much pain she's in. As I said, there will be no reprieve from that, but that's, that's again, that's something else that's really good of forming our own narrative because no narrative is being given to us. And so that, I think that's a excellent frame framing device of us, us doing the work to pull ourselves in. Yeah. And not again. That's another thing we talked about on Touch of Evil. Not enough filmmakers make us do the work. Yeah. And that that is Bergman. Of the two of his that I've seen, that is him. Like I'm not going to give this to you. You yeah. have to give. I am giving you something so so deep and internal of myself because this movie is really about his mother and these four women being the different elements of the, her persona. Yeah. And it's it's like I'm giving I'm sacrificing something. I'm putting this up here on the screen. I'm giving you so much of myself and I'm not going to let you not give something of yourself as well. This is this is what art is supposed to be. I give you something and you give me something back. Yeah. Or, well, and and it was funny because um I watched an interview with Harriet Anderson um and she she said um that oh god what is it oh yeah 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 so um uh, uh whoever was interviewed asked asked her about you know well what is what did what did 
Ingmar think the movie was about or what did she think it was about? And she kind of gave this anecdote. She says, Ing- Ingmar says things, but the next day he wouldn't mean it. He loved to lie. And he was talking about, oh, this is in reference to like our, the, the red walls being the interior of a womb and that he would frequently say things one day and the next be, next day be like, well, yeah, but maybe not. And not, not, not to be uh, pretentious or, or like, oh no, my, my art is ever shifting. It's like, it doesn't, this movie doesn't have to have a, this movie, his movies, the way he thought about film, it doesn't have to have a set way or belief or, or uh, style in which we are seeing it, you know, that it was open to interpretation, that, that he might have said something about it one day and then years later upon reflecting said, no, actually, maybe it was about this or I, to not know. Which is great. I love that. I love that it doesn't have to be one thing. So I've got multiple quotes of here of him talking about the film. He's got one yeah. where he says, I believe this is from about, both of these from about 2001. He says, I believe that the film, or whatever it is, yeah, consists of this poem. A human being dies, but is in a nightmare, gets stuck halfway through and pleads for tenderness, mercy, deliverance. And he's also got another piece where he says, is an exploration of the soul. Ever since childhood, I've imagined the soul to be a damp membrane in varying shades of red. So, I mean, this film is, it's so much. Yeah. It, 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 and as, as we were just talking about, you bring, you bring yourself into the film. Yeah. So it's also, it's not just what Bergman thinks of it, but it's what you think of it, which is what fucking great art is supposed to do. Yeah, and yeah. not enough films are this high level of art. Yeah. And, and then it's, it's funny because as, as, you know, interpretive as it can be, and as much as there's chock full of symbolism and, and, and metaphor, a lot of the, you know, it, it, there some of the things are very straightforward. We when we get the 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 like I guess the bat the flashbacks of each person, we we kind of get what that what each person is dealing with, you know, and 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 we might put our own unique classifications to it in terms of like with 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 Liv Ullman, right? We get that she is it's somebody having having some kind of extramarital thing with the doctor. Uh, she is married, um, and clearly. I, I would I would go as so far as to say that the husband loves her more than she loves him, uh, so much so that he stabs himself. <laughs> um and but that she is she's on a quest for something that she's not being fulfilled with. She's she's not. Um now do we is any of that said? Nope. Could I be wrong? Yep. But but you you also could be right. Sure, but and that's that's the point. Yeah, exactly. And there's enough of I mean, and I, I don't want to get right to it, but I mean I, I think it's it's Karen's backstory her little flashback that i find really fascinating and like shocking holy shit i i gasped i did too i like fucking i dropped my pen i'm taking notes i dropped my pen i'm like oh no like what the fuck is happening and what's so interesting so let's like we'll give a little context for, for the people who haven't seen this so um in karen's flashback uh, we find out that she she is also married which again i, I kind of thought was a bit of a revelation it's a bit of a about character surprise because we don't I don't know that they're married. And we come to find that both... It, it's interesting, and we don't have to go too deep down this rabbit hole. Karen and Marie, they're married. They both have children. Agnes is not. Mm-hmm. And and then Anna had a child, but we possibly didn't. out of wedlock. Who knows where yeah. the husband is, but she lost her child. So I, I just... the dyna- You can do with that whatever you want, but yeah, no, go ahead yeah. with, with Karen's. So um, we, we find out that Karen is married, Um I would I again I would go so far as to say clearly in a, in a loveless marriage. Yeah, he's very preoccupied. They I think she hints to the fact that he's got political aspirations. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. 
Um, and they're having a dinner and um, she's not really eating. She seems very much mentally somewhere else. Uh, he's just chowing down on his food. He's drinking wine. Um, he's calling for seconds, which again is a thing that you could interpret as well. Yeah. And, and it's weird because her, so her wine glass breaks, but almost inexplicably, she's not, it, I can't tell. It doesn't look like she's grabbing it that hard, but it seemed, it, it, it seemed almost more like uh, either random or divine that it broke at all, but I didn't see do her you, like break it. Do you feel it's deliberate? Her, the, no, I, I, I don't. Now, I, that's interesting. I don't think it's deliberate. I think it is. And see, this is what's so fucking great about this movie. But I think it is. And I think it's a, she is such an, she is so at odds with herself. A woman who I feel both, both craves attention. And as we can see later in the film is so clearly repulsed and reviled by touch, by touch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this is, the, this is the interesting juxtaposition about her character. Somebody who has been wanting attention and love her entire life, because we see in a, in a flashback that the, the mother was kind of cold towards her and not so much towards Maria was the, the favorite one. Mm hmm. And they the, they only show her, Corinne, and the mother having just one moment, and it's a moment of real sadness of yeah. these two women understanding each other and understanding the sadness in each other. But anyway, so go ahead with with Corinne. What? Well, so the the so the wine glass is broken, and um, there's a small piece that she she grabs, and it's funny because it's it's one of those things where I'm watching this and. I, I see that she's she's kind of touching it, but I don't think anything of it. I really don't. And she goes off into her her bedroom away from the husband, and she's being kind of cold towards Anna, who is helping her disrobe and then get into her her um her her bedwear, her evening wear. I'm not sure what you would call it. Her basically her pajamas, you know. And um, it seems it, it's 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 really methodical. It's, it's really ornate and you know, it's, it seems very period appropriate, you know, taking off like four layers to put three more back on. And that's just, you know, how it was back then. But then we realized no central heating. Yeah. Well, that's fair. That's a good point. And then we realized, cause she, we should say that this is uh late 1800s. Yeah. It's turn of the century. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. We realized that she's, she's, she's hidden the piece of glass in her hand. And now to what extent she does whatever, I don't know, but she, she, puts it in or near her vagina and cuts. She cuts herself. To me, it looks like it goes all the way in. Well, and that's the thing too, is it, it, it must, because then there's a moment where she, she stands up and walks With it into, inside, yeah. Yeah, into the main part of the bedroom where her husband is. And then begins to like smile and then take the blood from down there. And she rubs it on her face as she specifically she looks across her mouth. Yeah. And, before she goes into the other bedroom, it's weird because she she definitely goes through a myriad of emotions for uh, pain, obviously first, and there's like then like an acceptance of the pain, and then it's almost, I hate to use this word, but it's almost orgasmic. She almost is relishing. There, yeah, there is a, a clear moment where pleasure does pass over yeah. her face, and it's it, it's just this, and again, how to interpret it exactly is is. I, I think for anybody to have their own experience with. So how, how I interpret it is, is for me, I, I assumed at first that this was a way for her. This is the only way she can experience touch. This is the only way that she can experience any pleasure. She has to hurt herself. Sure. Which is people do that. People, there are people that cut themselves and that's the thing. That's for them. That's the way that they can feel something. Sure. They feel something real. Uh, 
But as the scene went on, and specifically, this is honestly one of the most powerful images I have ever seen on film is when she takes the blood and wipes it across her face. And as I said, specifically her mouth. And for me, this is her asserting some sort of dominance over the fact that she will not be touched. Yeah. You you will not, because the husband comes to the bed and looks like he's going to get into bed with her and potentially, you know, have sex with her. And sure. she is asserting dominance of that. You will not do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost, I thought, I, I thought we were going to go Lars von Trier for a minute. I thought that he was going to get inside her and she was going to fuck her husband up with the piece of glass inside her. Yeah. That's where my fucking demented mind was going <laughs> because I've, Again, seen enough Gaspar No and, and fucking Trier. Lars von Trier yeah. movies, which, again, I have to say, I mean, if these guys say that they're not students of Bergman, then I think they're fucking lying. Well, I, yeah, that, that would be that would be a stretch. I'm not, in, I'm not indicting them or anything like no, that, no, no. but you have to accept that this Bergman influenced so much, of, yeah. especially these international filmmakers. Were you surprised later on to... Uh, maybe not, but... When when it's after when we find out that when when Agnes has died and it's it's the funerals kind of happen, were you surprised to see that they were still married? Because I was, Frederick and and Corinne both. To be honest, oh okay. I when 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 it, it's the scene where they're both they're they're basically deciding what they're going to do with Anna. Like should we give her a little something or she could she could stay until the end of the month or whatever it is. And they're they're all talking so nonchalant. Well, the men basically are like, oh yes, well you know how could you promise her that she could take anything she wanted. I was generally like, wow, like they they're still married, and it's just like we it, it it was it was what made it interesting was was seeing the backstories and then and then seeing them together, and being like, they're still they're still like this is a silent fight like these like w- we saw the innermost thoughts of these people and like these tough situations that they're dealing with, and yet. They're still with this person. I just I thought this, I thought that was interesting. This plays into what you said towards the beginning of the episode of Bergman writing incredible women in his films, and I think that that shows that they have they're yeah they're not divorced. They are still together, and I think that's as I mentioned, the men are the weaker of of the partners in these couples. These women do hold power over them. Yeah, and I don't think they they could divorce the men could divorce them even if they wanted to. These women have, even though it may not appear like that from the outset we have seen that behind closed doors these women do have control and power to a degree over yeah. these men yeah um you know with with uh da- david's the doctor sorry who's the uh joaquin the, the yeah the, the the maria's husband mm-hmm. yeah he he is so distraught by his wife that he stabs himself and you know corinne shows her husband that no you will not have me yeah, yeah. Um, just to so a couple of uh, fun little side side things. So I, I uh, both uh, Bergman and Erland uh, D- Josephin, who was the doctor, um, they were both artistic directors of uh, the, the the big theater out there um, over a period of time, which I thought was great. But also when you when you read a lot of things about um, the movie, whether it's reviews or just kind of critical analysis of it, they always bring back um, Strindberg. Who is a, a playwright of Nordic descent too, and they they mentioned his play a dream play a lot. Um, and there was a so uh, uh, something that Truffaut actually said about the movie. He said in making a theatrical comparison, he said that the film begins like Chekhov's Three Sisters and ends like The Cherry Orchard, and in between, it's more like Strindberg's A Dream Play. Which for all my theater nerds out there, I can, I can, I'll just uh, bl- explain for a second. So Three Sisters is obviously about 
three sisters and they're all married and they're all going through their own stuff. So that's how it's like that. The cherry orchard kind of ends in a death and them sort of uh, leaving this house. So that's how it's like that. But then in the dream play is crazy Strindberg. It's out of this world. Just like what is going on? And I wouldn't say that um, Cries and Whispers is nearly as fantastical as a dream play. But in other, terms of other than that one scene. Yeah. But 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 even then, it, I mean, I get what they're going for. It's 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 like, how can these all be things that are happening? Like we're, we're really seeing this. This is something that's actually happening in, in the world of this of this movie. I'm, I, I, this movie bowled me over. I, it's it's just incredible, uh, everything that happens in it. I don't. <laughs> I think that's. I'm not sure what you read something earlier. It's hard to describe. It's hard to describe how this movie affects you, how it works. But it's, it does. It it like gets into your bloodstream and just is there. Yeah, it it really is. I it's. This is what I was talking to my uh, my my barber. Ebony is a big fan of the show, so shout out! Thanks for listening, Ebony. Hey. Um, this is I was talking to her about the film earlier, and I was like, I I honestly believe that this is a film that I'm going to come to accept as one of the greatest films I have ever seen. It's really good. Yeah, this I'm, is this is up there with Stalker as one of my favorite things that we've discovered. Yeah, I was going to say Stalker that, might have a slight edge, it's, but I don't know that with more viewings of this, that might change. But it's similar. It, it's it's one of those movies that you we discovered and and it was first time watches and 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 really kind of monumental. But also, there's so much room for interpretation. There's so much room to explore and 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 make your own conclusions or just ask questions and maybe never find the answers to them. You know, we've covered a lot of movies so far, and and a lot of them. Even even movies that we love, pretty straightforward. We know what they are. There, there's not a whole lot of room for interpretation. You know, like Back to the Future, we got it. We know what that is. You know, but there are movies that we were discovering that sometimes it's the openness of them that makes them maybe not the most enjoyable first watch, but certainly down the road more enjoyable to just try to discover and find out more about what's going on. Um, no, no, I will say I did. I did say earlier. I wish I had had the time to watch this seven or eight times. I did watch the ending three times. The last five minutes of this film, I stopped, back, rewatched, and then did the same again. Now we're we talking about when it's um, when Anna's looking at the diary, and we're yeah. sort of yeah, yeah. That like I had to, I had to keep putting that in mind. Like I don't want to forget this. Like this is so fucking important, the image- and I don't know why, but. If I, I, I hopefully I'll get there one day. The image of all four of the women walking on the grounds is and just and a lovely. pushing them in the swing. Yep. and there's so this is she's reading from Agnes's diary, and then it switches to Agnes herself narrating that last little portion of her diary. I, I love the moment where the her face she turns her face over the camera, and there's a moment where she looks at the screen very very briefly. Mm-hmm. She looks into camera for all of about a second and then continues looking away. I just, that fucking haunted me. Oh. Absolutely haunted me. So I wrote this. Um, she has a lot of stuff that she says at the end, but the, this is what leads up right to the end. And and she's talking about the moment in the swing and, and, and all that. She goes, I wanted to cling to that moment. And I thought, come what may, this is happiness. I can't wish for anything better. Now, for a few minutes, I can experience perfection, and I feel profoundly grateful to my life, which gives me peace. Thus, the cries and whispers fell silent. It's just so good. 
and, and especially for a movie that really didn't have a whole lot of dialogue, it's beautiful writing. It's wonderful. It's poetic and yet real. I yeah, I just I I love that. There's an important moment we haven't. There's there's well, I think there's two moments we also need to highlight. One of them is uh, Maria's interaction with the doctor. Yep. And and him calling out her callousness and her I, imperfections yeah, and I, everything. God, I love that scene. It's intense. Yeah, it it really is. And him calling out, you know, just the fact. I I think it's got something to do with the fact that she is the one that of the girl she was loved, and because that love. You think that that love, in a way, sort of hardened her in a different way, because Corinne is quite a hard personality as well. Mm-hmm. But again, the juxtaposition of how they are both hot and cold to each other—I just, I, I, I love the idea that we—I'm I'm grasping at something right now. But the fact that this love turned and went the other way and made her quite a cold and calculating person when it should have made her a softer, more loving woman. Mm-hmm. And she is loving in her own way, but not necessarily the right way, maybe. And sure. then, and and then the other scene is when they do finally, after Agnes has died, and they have that dinner scene, and Corinne is being as cruel as she possibly can be, which in turn I think works with that scene where David calling calling out Maria's imperfections. It's it's Corinne goes so far the other way as well, and it forces her to come back and realize that, no, we need each other. And she finally gives in and allows Marie to touch her, and they have that beautiful moment where they're just holding each other and giving each other these small kisses and, and feeling each other's faces yeah, and, and finally making up recon- for, yeah. yeah reconnecting. And, it, of course, it it's so tragic that it took the death of one of the sisters to bring them together like this. Yeah. As, you know, tragedy so often does. But this is a very heightened yeah. version of that. But ultimately, it still it might fails. not even be enough. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, because, you know. And Marie is so cold. So you think Corinne may be the cold, but it turns out it really is Maria. She right says, I don't remember there. every stupid thing I've done. Yeah. When it's like this, no, this is the most enlightened moments of your life together. And you just dismissed it. Well, and it's funny, too, because, because so little is said in the movie that, I guess for a while, a part of me thought that all the sisters were living together and that the flashbacks we saw with the husbands were long enough ago that maybe they were divorced. And so now they were all living back in the old house. And so a lot of this was sort of, for me, it was like, oh, okay, wait, 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 that's not the case. And now they're going back to their lives. They're going back to their homes with their kids and their husbands. And so when Maria was so cold towards Corinne at the end of it, it was like, I mean, did for these few days, did we did we just see a, a totally different Maria than actually exists in, in the world, you know? Um, because even in the flashbacks, she's so like flirty and, and and come get me with the doctor. And like even there are moments when he's forcing her to look in the mirror and he's he's kind of berating her where it's not like it's it is affecting her at times. But at other times, it's like. It's it's just like going. It's like I'm I'm better than what you're saying. Like I hear you, but I don't. Oh, because she's got that smug smirk. Yeah. she's got us. And of course, Corinne calls out her smile. Yeah, you know, don't grin at me like that. Is or I'm paraphrasing, but she talks about her smile. Yeah. I love that you keep hitting upon the lack of dialogue in this film, and specifically after the scene where they do come together and they are touching, and the music comes up, and we don't get to we hear don't. what they say. Yeah, that's right. And that is because that's theirs. That's yeah. not ours. That's theirs. They get to have this and we don't. And ultimately, unimportant. Not not just because 
Um, well, it will prove to be unimportant, yeah, but, at but, least in one of their minds. But that it almost seems more about the physical contact. Yes. You know, that it is, it's been years since they've touched each other, you know, and we, we get it. Like the way that Corinne recoils earlier from, from, from that is just, and that's the thing. There are so many, there are so many moments in this movie that could have felt unjustified or not realistic. Like what are we going on? What's going on here? But it's the, it's the specificity and the clarity that these, these, these actresses bring to the characters is just staggering, just staggering. There was one little thing I want to bring up. Um, it's a funny thing. It's kind of an it's an acting trick thing I wanted to bring up because I think the priest is doing it. Um, so there, there's one thing he does that I I don't like. It's a total nitpick. And then there's something else that I, I just want to bring up. So anyway, see, this is thing where he opens the Bible and then he doesn't look at it, but he, he's reading from it. That's a small actor thing. Like, don't do that. Either don't open the book or or glance down so we get it that you're maybe checking in. That's a that's a small thing. But he does this thing where he he's 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 kind of giving his own. He's re, he's not reading from the book anymore. He's just sort of talking about her and the life and and he's that getting her, emotional. Her faith was stronger than his. Yeah, and um, he's starting he he's starting to get tears, but he's not like crying. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not mm. he's not uncontrollable, but he can tell he's getting emotional. Because there is, as we've talked about the weak men, there is a weakness in him as well. He's supposed to be a priest. He's supposed to be a man of God. But this is a, a theme that runs through, as I understand, most of Bergman's work. There's an absence of God in his films. And we saw a lot of that in Seventh Seal. I love that that's something that, that reoccurs. And he talks about, you know, her faith being stronger than his. And that's something I wrote a note is that is Bergman suggesting that only in death can we find God? Like the people that are close, closest to death, maybe they feel it more than the rest of us that sure. are alive and preoccupied with our lives. That's actually a, a lot of a, a lot of people believe that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just gonna say though, um, he's he's doing the thing where um, when you want to look emotional but you can't necessarily get tears, you just you don't you don't blink. Do you, have you ever seen actors do this? No, it's great. You just you say your lines with the intensity that you normally would, but you just you just don't blink. And the longer you don't blink, especially with 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 the light from and and the more that you can keep your eyes open, you will start to well because you're gonna want to blink. They want to walk. Oh, I'm doing it right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just watching him not blink, and then the the water coming up. It's like ah, I see what you're doing. Yeah, it's good. It's a good move. Yeah, um, nuts. If you can't there. get there emotionally enough to cry, just don't blink and your eyes will do it for you. And usually it's a combination. You can do a combination of both. Like like if the text is good and you're in the moment, that's great. But some people want, feel like you need to get water for it to look like, ooh, I'm crying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. anyways. Sidebar, can can you explain how, so if, yeah, there's lots of actors I know that can cry on command, a lot of people that aren't necessarily, yeah, we, we, some of us, you can find the ability to cry on command. Can you explain how Christian Bale is able to sweat on command through an acting technique like that? <laughs> Any context for this? Or? Yeah, an American Psycho, uh, there's a scene with the um, business cards. And remember, they they see uh, Jared Leto's business card. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he gets insanely jealous about that because he thinks he's got... It's all about one-upmanship. Yeah, yeah. and, oh, yeah. and then when they show him, you know, the Jared Leto character's card, he, he looks at it and a bead of sweat forms at his temple and rolls down his face. And apparently, listen to the commentary on it years and years ago, the, the director said he did that every take. I don't know. Right. There, there are, there are. I mean, this isn't going to answer your question, but there are, there are some um, techniques that you can do, uh, like like breathing techniques, and um, 
like science has shown that there are certain ways that we can pattern our breathing, that if we breathe a certain way for a long enough period of time, not very long, uh, it'll actually start to affect our, our mood. Like if we do that for a long enough period of time, you will start to either feel scared or sad, you know, cause that, and that's just physiological. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that answers the sweat question there could, but like if you're like seriously into a moment, and and you're just you know you I don't know I don't know, there are weird shit can happen that you can. Sorry, I know fucking random tangent that has nothing to do with anything. But you were just talking about little acting good. techniques to good. help you. I like you know, that. Yeah, I like that. Are there any? Uh, so we haven't done our usuals. We haven't done favorite shots or unsung heroes. Do you have? Uh... Man, my my, my well, he's sung. He won an Oscar for. But Sven Nyqvist is just. I know I, that that set design as well and we and don't go outside a lot but the opening stills oh. of everything through the fog yeah so good that's that's the thing that only we only go outside in flashbacks uh-huh. in the present time we're always inside they never leave the house and i was thinking it's drenched in red is this purgatory oh another th- yeah. yeah is is this their hell is this their purgatory and i love the white dresses on the red background in there yeah. as well I, oh fuck i love that contrast well, and, and like and also it's white roses early yeah. on which yeah. is great because Obviously, that's a white roses are a thing, but it's like no, it's roses are red. That's how we know it. Roses are red, and the fact that it's white roses was just a nice little, nice little touch. I like that. Uh, Based on two movies, I fucking Bergman is a genius. Oh yeah, fucking genius. <clears throat> I would say so too. I would. I would. I would. Say we that. need why? Why don't we have more like him, man? Like what the fuck? I, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't. need more of this. I need all of this in my face. Okay, all the okay, time. Okay. Um, I I don't. I don't know that I have a favorite shot. I, and that's not a bad thing. I just fucking loved this movie. It's hard really to just pinpoint something specifically. Yeah. I, it's the it's the wiping the blood across her mouth for me. And that is just one of the most provocative things I have ever seen. I mean, I would say, maybe this is not a good answer, but I would say it's the repeated motif of the women half in, half in black with the, the crossfade to red and then into it. As I just... And, and again, maybe, you know, us trying to sound smart or whatever, but like we're only seeing half of their face before we go into it. We're, we're not getting the whole story. You know, we're, we're getting a, a shaded version of it. We're, we're getting some kind of redacted history of, of, of a flashback. Because yeah, they're going to remember it from their point of view. Yeah. So I just, I, I mean, all of, and, and all of those shots are great. They're all fantastic. That gets us into those moments. So, but I do, I do love the end of the movie too. It's just phenomenal. Phenomenal. The, the over-analysis, there is some over-analysis, and we've, we've talked about over-analysis in other episodes as well. There's a little bit that kind of bugged me. There's one, and again, this is that that professor that I mentioned earlier. It's um, he, he talks about um, Anna and her, her, her child. The, the one moment, the quote-unquote one moment where we get to see her mourning the loss of her child, and there's still a crib in her room as well, which yeah. devastated me. Yeah, yeah, it was harsh. I had to go back and make sure that I had actually seen I was like, oh, shit, no, there's still a crib in her room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they talk. He talked about how after she prays, she takes a bite of the of an apple, and how that's to do with like forbidden fruit and this, that, and the other. I'm like, I mean, come on, man, you're really clutching at that biblical aspect with this thing. Like that's really, you know, because hang on, I I have it. Well, can, I'm gonna go on a brief tangent while you're looking, if you don't mind. Did I ever tell you the the story? Of, I had to write a paper in grad school about Chekhov, and um, 
I'd read so many essays and and sort of scholarly articles about different Chekhov plays and his works, and it's it felt like you could you could almost say anything about anything if you had like the loosest follow through. So I, I wrote a, I wrote an essay about um, Chekhov's play uh, Uncle Vanya and its relation to the Seven Deadly Sins, because all of the Seven Deadly Sins are are in the play. Like if you look for it, they're all there. Now, I made this up before I even did the research and then I read the play again and I found all seven examples and I like backed it up with these real claims. But it's like, you could go you, now. Now it's like, haven't seen cries and whispers. If you wanted to like, you know, go back and read paradise lost and be like, Oh, well here's, here's, here's how this, here's how this movie is actually uh, and, paradise and tied lost. it and tried into my purgatory. Yeah, exactly. You, you could easily do that. You could yeah. easily do that with, I mean, it, it's just it, it's I think it's the, the attention that you want to specifically give to it right I, and I think that's when I talk it's good that you can bring something of yourself into it like you said there is a the the chance to overanalyze it so he was talking about the eating of the apple links Anna whose dead daughter was undoubtedly an Ill- illegitimate child we don't know that don't how know would that. we know that with the eve of the fall with original sin so what he's saying is that she had the child out of wedlock therefore I think the child was killed and then she's eating from the forbidden fruit the apple I think that's you're really you're really grasping there man like you're really putting way too much of a, a biblical slant on this you are not going to hear anything different from me. which and I, and I don't think Bergman really helped himself because of course there's the a lot of people have drawn comparisons to a, a Michelangelo uh, sculpture of the Virgin Mary cradling the dead Christ. And of course, when Agnes is dead, there's a similar pose as Anna is holding her. So I think he he opened himself up to some of that. But I think there, I do get frustrated sometimes when we're doing the research for films and I see people really overreaching like that. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because I, I would say like of the Criterion films that we've done, the essays that come with it are usually they're well worded. I mean, they don't, they don't go into this kind of deep analysis of stuff. It's, Usually, just a really well-worded um, opinion piece, which I, I enjoy. I enjoy reading. Um, but some of these other like things, like links off of Wikipedia of like full scholarly articles, it's like, wow. Oh, okay, I, I see what you're saying. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm on board, but I, I, I got gotcha. you. But that's, but hey, that's great. That's why a film like this will hopefully live on. It, totally, exactly, yeah. And hopefully, more people will see it based on this this episode. I don't know, maybe I not. Fucking hope so. Yeah. Well, otherwise, I, what are we doing this for? Well, that's that's a great point. Um, to, well, to, to further our own, our own film knowledge and to keep can keep testing ourselves. Um, and I, I think we're at that question time. Yeah, and it's an obvious. I mean, absolutely. Yes. Was is one of the greatest films I have ever seen. I still don't know exactly why. I think I'm going to spend a long time figuring it out, and no. I and I don't and I and I relish that prospect and and in a totally different way because these are totally different movies but this is one i watched without melissa but in a similar in a similar way when i watched a matter of life and death this was when i was like fuck i did a disservice to her to not just i and, and it's one where i waited maybe about like six weeks before i watched a matter of life and death. i i'm like trying to plot out in advance when i'm going to put this on because it it's just fucking incredible. At next Criterion sale, I'm buying this one. I I'm so glad I bought. I did. I I was like, it's it's expensive otherwise, but I was like, I on the fifty percent off thing, I I bought the Bergman thing and seventy five when it's half off. Is I it think retail fifty? Yeah, this was retail is one fifty. No, it's not. Retail's three hundred for yeah, that I think set. So yeah, Jesus Christ. It's like thirty four movies in it. Yeah, I know. And I'm, and I'm tempted, but I'm just saying, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can take that plunge. I know, man. I don't know. But I'll I'll definitely be adding Cries and Whispers to the collection. Yeah. No, no doubt. So good. So as good. well as the Great Escape. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh well, it'll be a while, but yeah, that'll yeah. be great. Oh man, I can't, I, I can't wait. I'm so happy they did a 4K restoration of that. That'll anyway, be good. that's neither here nor there. We well, both anyways, agree it should be in the book. Yes, and but we want to know what you think, and please, God, seek this movie out and watch it. Um, and then and then hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter and let us know what you think. Um, and and you can listen to us on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all those great places. Um, and stay tuned next week. For the 25th anniversary of one of my fucking all-time favorite movies. Oh, I'm giddy as all hell. I'm very excited about it. But we won't tell you one yet. It was have to wait. And until then, I'm Adam. And I am Ian. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>